Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Shuli Mishkin is a licensed tour guide who in normal times guides all over Israel and gives tour and text courses. She guides and teaches in Derkenu, a program in Midrashat Lindebaum for special needs students who come to Israel for their gap year. She is currently focusing on virtual tours, bringing Israel to the world and the world to Israel. She was a Matan scholar from 1993 to 1994. Shuli, welcome. Thank you, Yosefa. It's very exciting to be out in the real world seeing real people. (laughs) Same here. Shuli, take us back as far as you would like, but I would love to hear how you started on this path of yours of guiding, of combining Torah sources and knowledge in all that you do. I came to Israel for the first time for my gap year after high school. I'd never been to Israel before, which today is like inconceivable, but in the 80s, that wasn't so shocking. I was in the 2000s and it was, yeah. Yeah. So now now everybody's been like a million times, but I had never been. I had a very, very like Zionist upbringing, but I'd never been to Israel. Always wanted to come, came, fell in love with everything, really wanted to stay. Parents, not so much. We're Zionists. We're not that Zionist. Um, So I went back and I went to college. I went to Barnard in New York and I studied Jewish history. That was what was interesting to me. Super, super practical career, by the way. And uh, and I kept coming back, right? Whenever I could come back, you know, those free summer programs, all those things, you know, just kept coming back to Israel. And of course, you know, looking for somebody. Um, and I was lucky and I found someone, my husband, Jonathan, my wonderful husband, who also wanted to come. So we made Aliyah and I was still doing Jewish history. I was, I had done a master's. I was starting to like plan to write my doctorate. Didn't go so good. Uh, I sat in the library kind of falling asleep. Uh, It just, it wasn't happening. Academia was not for me. And I was trying to figure out what to do. I was doing a little teaching. I wasn't, and I was, I had a baby. I wasn't really sure where I was going. But then uh, someone pointed out to me that in the Diaspora Museum in Beit HaTfutzot in Tel Aviv, which is a museum that I love, they were offering a two-week course to guide in the museum. So I said, oh, Maybe I could do that. That would be interesting. It's all about history. So I went and I did it and it was great. I loved it. And and I realized, wow, guiding, I could do that, right? I, I like the stuff. I could teach. And I decided to take the guide course. Now I came into the guide course. You have to understand guide course is a, is a very interesting thing because when we were there, it was a cohort of 50 people. Okay. It's a range of people from, first of all, range of ages, right? Lots of people like me in your 20s looking for a career, but we had all sorts of people who were retired from all different kinds of fascinating professions, right? And decided this was going to be their second or maybe their third career. So we had some guy who was like high up in the Mishtara and the police, and he had been everywhere in the country. We had some guy, my favorite example, he was a, a really like high up geologist. I don't know who he worked for. Everywhere we went in the country, didn't matter. He was looking at the rocks, right? We went to Masada. <laughs> wow, look at these rocks. Yeah. So there's all kinds of guides in the world. And then all ranges of religiosity. We had people from all different countries. We had Arabs, Christians, and Muslims. It was very, very interesting. I came in with a pretty good background in Tanakh, Jewish history, like the Jewish side. I knew nothing, nothing about Israel. The very first class, they gave us a blank map, you know, one of those mapai lemet that you have to fill out. I looked at my neighbor. I cheated the whole thing. I didn't know anything. Um, but <laughs> From you your know, very Zionist education. From my Zionist education. You know, I could find Tel Aviv. That was pretty much it. But from that point on, you know, you you really are exposed to so many 
places and people and and I and I really fell in love with it. And it's it's an amazing way to give over your feelings about Israel, your love for Israel. And also everybody goes in their own direction. So for me, what's fascinating is the Jewish sources, the Tanakh, the Gemara, Zionist sources. You know, I'm not necessarily a trees and flower girl, even though you know I do it a little bit, but I'm much more into the history. And for me to be able to take someone somewhere and to say, okay, you know, you learned this parak in Shmuel, and now you're seeing where it happened, and it's that wow moment. That's an amazing thing, right? So that's that's really where it it came from. Now Matan was part of the story because when I first came, when we first made Aliyah, the framework that I was in in between sitting in the library and uh, and falling asleep is that I was going to Matan, right? Matan had just started this program. I don't remember if it was the first year or the second year, but this program called the Scholars Program. And, you know, they were giving free tuition and a milga, great, excellent money, wonderful. Um, so Jonathan was in Griscolo and I was in Matan for a half a day. And I was suddenly exposed to this amazing place. Right? It wasn't an amazing place physically. It was in this tiny little horrible place on Ben Yafunestri. You weren't even there at that time, right? It was in the <laughs> I was about the Efrata school. <laughs> yeah, you're you're little. I always forget. Um, it was in the Efrata school, and it was this awful little place. It was freezing in the winter, but the teachers were amazing. And you just have this world of, and I'd always had Jewish learning, but this world of higher Jewish learning that opens up. So that's another piece of the puzzle. And since that time, right, that was 93. So that was more years than I want to think about how many it was. Um, but I really, Matan has been kind of weaving in and out of my life. And it made me very, very happy when quite a while ago, I was taken on to be part of the staff. Because to be the staff in a place where you yourself received so much and to be you know, a, a colleague with women who are so incredible and who taught me so much, that's an amazing feeling. Yeah, I, I definitely can relate to that feeling as well. Had you, what, what was your experience prior uh, in women's learning before, before age when you came here and you were in Israel with your husband? Um, what had that exposure been like for you? So I went to Yeshiva Flatbush, right? So I had always learned Gemara. Before that, even my grandfather, my mother's father, he was the librarian in Yeshiva Flatbush. He was a very uh, significant figure in my life. He was a significant figure in a lot of people's lives. What's very nice is today I meet people who are probably about 15 to 20 years older than me. And if it somehow comes out that they went to Yeshiva Flatbush, so I tell them who my grandfather, your grandfather was Dr. Birnbaum. He's the reason I know Hebrew. He's, cause he would, you know, he would give out, you would borrow a book and he would have these contests, right? Where you had to finish the book and then you would get tested on it and then you get a prize. But it wasn't like, oh, what's the name of the book? My grandfather read every book in that library <laughs> and he oh. asked these very detailed, he was not a friar. He was a very tough cookie. Right? And he asked these very, detailed questions. And people say, oh, I remember that story that your grandfather tested me on. So that's always a very nice feeling. But we would, they lived, my grandparents lived a block away from me in Brooklyn. And that's another thing people don't know about me. I'm from Brooklyn. Um, I, this is, that's my first time learning this. I didn't I'm know. I'm from Brooklyn. Because <laughs> I thought you were from Canada. No, my husband's from Canada. Okay. He's the classy one. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm a Brooklyn girl. So they lived a block away. And every Shabbos afternoon, we would go 
visit them. And uh, my very strong memory is sitting and learning Gemara with my grandfather. Now, I'm sure it wasn't anything particularly sophisticated, but that was important to him that we should sit together and we should learn something. And I actually have in my house, when he passed away and then my grandmother passed away, he had an amazing library. We stole a lot of books. And I have his shas, his beautiful shas that he got as a prize from Jewish Theological Seminary, which he went to when he came to America. Wow. So we have that shot in the house. So that was probably my first real exposure to learning. Did you have, you had brothers? I have one brother who's a baby. He's much younger than me. Okay. I have sisters. I'm the oldest, two sisters and a brother. And um, did everybody learn with your grandfather? So he passed away, I guess, when I was in college. So probably my younger sister did, but I, I was the only one who was like into it. Yeah, you were the um, one that, that took I that I mean, up. and the other two, you know, we're like two sets. We're two that are three years apart, and then there's a gap of 12 years, and then there's another two. So they didn't have that experience. And then when I was in college, I studied in Drisha in New York mm -hmm. uh, with Rev Silber and the other people who were in Drisha. And there were also, you know, in Colombia, there were all kinds of interesting people teaching, uh, Rav Natty Helfgott, among others. And, and I went to Michalala. I went to Michalala. That was a big thing. Shuli, throughout all of those years of learning and exposure, both in your family and outside of it, who were some of your role models? So I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say, I'm not such a good person at like, you know, finding my role models and connecting with them. I I'm a little shy about that. But, you know, so when people say, oh, who do you want to meet? I, I wouldn't have anything to say to them. I'd just be like starstruck. Um, <laughs> but Definitely people who taught me, certainly that year in Matan was a very formative year. Rabbanit Bina, just the fact that she started this incredible thing, right, this incredible institution and brought in all these people and, and trying to bring a, a new look to women's learning, that was very important. But I can't say I had so much personal contact with her. Dr. Brian Levy taught us all the time, and she was really unbelievable because you know how she teaches. She has such a way about her, and she also, you know, will take an hour and will teach you 59 and a half minutes of Torah, right? There, there, yeah. There's no BS, right? Yeah. You are learning Torah. That's what you're doing with mm -hmm. her. And that, to me, was very powerful. Uh, and also to see her as this woman who, you know, had a, a house full of children, and she came in with her hair covered, and yet she was teaching Torah. Other people we had that year, I mean, there were a lot of people who we had who I know now, and I, I didn't understand anything that they were saying. Now, for example, <laughs> uh, Rav Danny Wolf taught us Gemara totally over my head. Uh, Rav Gigi, who's now my neighbor, taught us Halacha, also didn't get what was going on. But we had Rav Breuer, Allah Shalom. Oh, wow. And he was just unbelievable, right? Wow. And everybody would joke that you had to sit like in the front row because you had to catch all those little mumbled nasty things he said under his breath. Right? <laughs> but it, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. He taught you Tanakh? He taught us, yeah, he taught us Tanakh. Yeah. So it was really a very powerful program. And of course, all the people that you meet along the way, right? Your contemporaries. I mean, I look, I feel like I'm a very fortunate generation. Uh, fortunate, unfortunate. I, I'm a generation, I'm the generation in the middle. Right? I'm the generation that saw the revolution. Mm -hmm. So, the women that made the revolution, people like Malki or Rabbanit Henkin, they are the ones who came before me who really came and created something new for women. And, and I saw the need for that and the struggles for that. And then I look at people like my daughters or like you who came into a, a world already made. Not you're not that you're not creating new things, but. There's less of an there was a, a foundation there. There's a foundation. A very, there's very less of an foundation. understanding of wow, 
this is really revolutionary. But on the other hand, I look at people like you and people like my daughters and I say, wow, look at how they are moving forward even more. And it's amazing to me. I mean, my daughters amaze me. Like, how did they come out of me? Um, <laughs> I have a daughter who's a combat soldier. Okay. That, that's the wildest, uh, the wildest thing I ever did was leave my home and, and make Aliyah. But she's, it's, it's pretty she, wild, but a different kind of wild. It's incredibly yeah. wild that she's doing that. And then I have another daughter who's a Fabrent feminist, right? She, she and her husband bought each other other talitot and wore them under the chuppah, okay? And it's beautiful. It's so, so beautiful. And she yearns for Judaism in a different way than I do, but so beautifully and so powerfully. And, and, and just to see that course of the revolution, I think it's very, it's very fortunate for me to be able to see those stages of the, the generation before me, the generation after me, and my generation, which has also done an incredible amount. Yeah, I, I want to stop there for a second and really focus on that generation, a whole bunch of which are being interviewed in this podcast series. And they are, the, what's unique about your generation is that you were foundational and continued the foundation that was still being built, but you're also still here and be, please God for so many more years because so much has changed and shifted in a short amount right. of time. So you're also still contributing to this revolution, but you're also seeing where the generations after you are taking it further. Look, when I went last year to the Siyum Dafyomi, to what Michelle Farber organized in Binyan Yeah, it was the most beautiful moment in years. You know, you just wanted to cry. You looked around this room, thousands of women of all ages, learning Torah, supporting Torah, cheering for Torah. It was an incredible, incredible revolution. And the women that they honored and they called up on stage, right? The women who have been learning and teaching and creating this foundation, it, it just makes you want to cry. It's so beautiful. Uh, and I do feel that I have that appreciation for it that I think is, is a little lacking in the younger generation who say, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. It is the way it's supposed to be, but it wasn't always. Yeah. You've already shared with us anecdotally uh, about a lot of the changes that have happened over the years in women's learning, but I'm also curious if you can point to specific trends that you see happening other than a change in the generation's perspective on whether this is an obvious part of their life or something they have to work for. Are there specific trends that you've noticed over the years? Well, first of all, the the Dafyomi revolution is an amazing one, right? It really, and I think a huge, huge amount of credit goes to Michelle Farber, who you know here she is. She's this girl. She's my age. She's like married she went to, to Flatbush. No, no, she went to Flatbush, <laughs> and she just turned the world upside down. And, and she had this dream. And when we heard about it in our Dafyomi group in a, in a lunch foot that she had rented out Binyaneoma, we're like, that's really nice, but that's insane, right? She's not going to fill Binyaneoma, and she filled and Vaodech she filled Binyan. But the really amazing thing is not that people turned out for that one night, but that people showed up to start learning. And yeah, it was also a beginning. It, it wasn't was just an beginning. ending for people. It was, it was a, beginning. a beginning. And I was watching, you know, I, people who I know who had seen me learn. I, I finished the cycle last time. And people I know who had seen me learning said, oh, that's so nice. Maybe I'll do it one day. And suddenly they joined. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, they'll get through brachos. Brachos is fun. Brachos is nice. And then Shabbos, uh, that's it. Forget it. I'm not doing this crazy stuff. And they stayed. They stayed through Shabbos. They stayed through Eruvin, which is really insane, right? And they're still <laughs> here. And so that's an amazing revolution. There are there are literally thousands of women learning Dafyomi today that would never have thought to pick up a Gemara before. So that's an incredible thing. Yeah. Something that's a, a change that's a little bit 
not as positive, um, and I'm sure you see this with your students as well, is the whole new approach to Judaism as like the buffet menu, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's the best Julie way to put it. Julie is always great with metaphors. But you understand yes, what I'm saying, I know right? exactly what you mean. Lo bali, lo elai, right? I and I don't connect. I don't connect to this mitzvah. I don't connect... You know what? Too bad. This is Torah Mishamayim, man. You got to do it. I don't care if you connect, right? And we grew up in a very different world, right? We grew up in a world where you have a commitment and this is what you do. And I don't care if you don't like this mitzvah. I remember when I was in college, we had on our bookshelf, you know, one of of my roommates had this series called Popular Halacha. And we always joked that there should be a series called Unpopular Halacha because there, there, of course, is quite a lot of unpopular halacha. But you know what? It's a package deal. And you are a Eurasia Mayim and you do the whole darn thing. And that approach of I don't connect to it, I don't feel for it, it's not me, uh, that I find much more problematic. Look, the flip side of it is there's much more of a searching for meaning and for spirituality, which I think my generation is consciously very lacking. And certainly I am very lacking in that. Which part? The search or the... The the need to feel connected to how do I pray, right? And what is... And the spiritual search and the whole uh, interest in Hasidut and Breslov. We have no Breslov books in my house. You know, my son came home from high school. I need this is something Torah, Rabbi Nachman. I'm like, what the heck? We don't have those kinds of books in our house. <laughs> you know, but... But it's, uh, you know, we are very, my Menidian household, not to sound too uh, flighty, you know, high flying, but you do it because the Torah says you do it and that's what you do. And there's truth and there's stuff that's not truth, right? My husband is even much, much stronger than I am about this, right? There's emet and there's sheker. There's truth and there's falsehood and you have to know what the difference is. And that has very much changed today. Yeah, we live in a world that those, that dichotomy is... Not popular. Right. Everything is relative. Truth is relative. Uh, Identity is relative. Identity is relative. And that is very not appealing to me. But what do we do? We live in that world. You you have to keep on carrying the flame of truth. Do you you find that your kids are more on one side than the other? Yeah, we have. I mean, I have five. And they're in different directions and in different places. Mm-hmm. You know, I have one who is very square. You know him well. <laughs> um, yeah, he's lovely. And he is definitely following in that path. And the others are going to choose their own path. As long as it's a path that they are true to themselves. And, and I hope it's a path that's going to be true to what we taught them. But I, I understand. Look, here I am. I'm living 6,000 miles away from my parents. I chose a different path. Yeah, it's always a rough point, that whole thing about telling your kids want them to listen. But we, as the parent models who <laughs> left we our family, yeah. it's one of those lacuna in that whole, in that whole Look, thing. Look, what's our, <laughs> what's, our, what's our nightmare that we'll have a child who will make you read yeah, a little right. bit. Yeah, it is a uh, But then you did that to your parents. Yeah, that's what I did. I left. I left home. You know, I think for my husband, it's more a nightmare of that they won't be religious. But for me, it's like, are you going to leave? How could you leave Eretz Israel? Right. Yeah. So, it's a complicated world. Yeah, definitely. So, alongside those changes that you've seen and that you've witnessed over over this time, are there any things that you really would like to see change in the future? Movements that you would like to see being furthered for women, specifically um, for Torah in general? Look, I feel like Orthodox women have gone in an incredibly rapid pace 
towards becoming part of the world. And I, and I look around at my friends and my neighbors, and I live in Ellensfoot, so, you know. Right, it's a little bit of a... It's a bubble. A, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it in a negative way, but it's a very particular view on women and their role right. in North Sex Judaism. So I look at the women in my neighborhood who are incredible, right? My neighbors are people like Shani Tarragon and Dr. Yael Ziegler, and, and what they have done and what they have accomplished. And we have made unbelievable leaps forward in terms of Torah learning and Torah teaching. And, and I feel that I have no problem teaching men, teaching mixed audience. And I think most audiences don't have a problem listening to me. On the other hand, we come to shul and suddenly we're stuck there behind the machitza, which of course, with this crazy year that we've had, has also started changing to a certain yeah. extent. So it's something that personally... I don't care that much. You know, I don't need to put on tefillin. I don't need to be called up to the Torah. And that's probably also a generational thing. Mm -hmm. But I do think that true change will only happen when that side of the equation happens as well. Not just the learning and the teaching, but also the Beit Knesset, uh, the roles in the Beit Knesset, that, that's an important element as well. I mean, well. It, it is, it it does exist, right? We have, I mean, Anim Shivionim or No, I, I understand that. But in other Yishuvim in the Gush, they yes. do have them. Uh, yes, but it's not fully accepted. Oh, it's, it's still, it's still certainly it's, a marginal uh, practice. It's a long way to go still. Yeah. I, there's a quote that I really uh, have taken with me from someone who taught me when I was in Stern from uh, Rabbi Dr. Saul Berman. And he, in a lecture that wasn't when I was a student, but much later on that I heard online, he said that the test of time of whether something remains orthodox practice is if it remains. Mm -hmm. Meaning until something is considered a mainstay, it's marginal. Right. And right. once it becomes, it, he said, if it's true, and if it's true to the orthodox spirit, then it will remain as a practice with the Orthodox community. But mm -hmm. if it's a fringe, you know, group that rises for about 20 years or so or 30 years, but then two generations later is no longer there, then we know that it wasn't truth to the Orthodox yeah. spirit. Meaning that the spirit very, itself is its, it has its own innate test. It's a very profound way of looking at it. I yeah, agree with I really, you. I, I love that piece. So you're saying that where you really feel like things still need to move and obviously it'll have to be organically and where it already has started moving is really in the Beit Knesset, in the shul setting. Yes, to a large extent. Look, also in terms of women and feminism in general in the world, that women need to be in more leadership roles, which of course is happening, but it, it needs to keep on happening. Yeah. Look, you look back and it's happened really fast. And I think we don't acknowledge it. I, I have, you know, uh, groups that come, you know, not religious and they say, well, why is Judaism so behind? And you say, okay, ladies, look at the... <laughs> This is when I am with my uh, my momentum women, my women who come from the, the states who are not religious at all. And I say, yeah. ladies, look at the 60s in America, right? The early 60s. Women, not the Jewish world, the regular world. You couldn't go in pants. You had to wear stockings. You were a secretary. You couldn't be, you know, how high could you rise on the corporate ladder? And that's the 60s in the big world. So yeah. we're moving. Yeah. It's just taking time. It's at an, an orthodox pace. Yeah, an orthodox pace. That's a good way to put it. I'd love to hear about your work, uh, which of course has shifted over the years, especially this year during Corona. So tell us about what you're doing this year, what you did in the past, and Bezat Hashem, what you'll also be doing in the future. Okay, so in my former life, which hopefully will be my future <laughs> life again, no, really, there everyone has been 
traumatized by this year, but I think tour guides are among the most. But in my former life, I was out and about and going places and taking people and really all kinds of groups, each one with its own set of challenges, right? It's it's a very different challenge to take a family of all ages to Masada and to make sure that the, the six-year-old is interested, but also to answer the questions of the grandparents. And that's amazing and fun. And then when you do adult education, of course, then it's much more preparation. You know, Masada, I know what I want to say, but when I do adult education, I need my sources and my source sheets, and I have to be prepared for everybody's questions. And that's also incredible. So really, that has been my life, going with people, teaching them, exposing them to the land, trying to put in a little bit of Yiddishkeit and Zionism. Um, which you, you put in. Which I Bigadol, try. I try. I'm not the, yeah. the inspirational stories kind of tour guide, but I do try you to get plenty of people turned on. Yeah. And one of the things that I really was, it was a wonderful opportunity for me, and I'm still doing it, is the Learn and Tour courses that we developed in Matan, uh, which started, I don't know, at least 10 years ago, a long time ago, mm-hmm. which was an idea that I have always wanted to do. And it wasn't so prevalent when we started it. Now it's everywhere. But to take a class where you're learning a text or a time period and to go out once a month or so to go bashetach, to go to see what it is. So you're learning Sefer Shmuel, and you go to Shiloh, and you go to, uh, you know, Nebi Samuel, and you go to Ir David. And it, it really is an incredible balance between the learning in the classroom, which I'm very fortunate that I had wonderful partners, including you. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> I was in t- the tribe, the tribe yeah, course. So, yeah. you know, we had uh, Yosefa and Shani and Yael, and uh, today Rivi Frankel, who's an up-and-coming star. Yeah. And and it's just a lot, a lot of fun to be able to see the different components, right? The text and the context. So that's, you know, what I've been doing. And of course, teaching in different pr- contexts, Darkenu girls who are special needs, like very high level, they're able to leave home and come to Israel for the year. A lot of times they come for more than a year. It's a program started by my amazing superwoman friend. I have a lot of them. Um, Alana Goldscheider, who said, you know, all these girls, they've been mainstreamed, all, boys also, there's a boys program, they've been mainstreamed all their life. And yeah. now suddenly all their contemporaries are going to Israel and they're stuck at home. So she created this program about 15 years ago, and it's an amazing program. Mamash. Yeah, it's really um, beautiful. It really is. And they are a wonderful group to teach. And also what I've been doing in the last few years, but have not this year, obviously, is a program called Momentum, which is uh, bringing women, tons and tons and tons of women from North America, but now really from all over the world. Been called Birthright for Moms. They don't like that name. Right. Yeah. But I, um, I didn't know you I didn't know you were involved in them. Oh yeah, I've been doing that for years. And you really meet women from everywhere with wow. many, many levels of background who want to connect to Israel and to Judaism and bring it home to their families. And that's a totally different kind of challenge, but also it's, it's mostly non-Orthodox women? It's yes. Almost mm. exclusively, and we have uh, some who are intermarried, and we have, you know, we have from more traditional to less traditional, but there's some who really know nothing from nothing uh, in terms of Judaism, and the ones who know things as well. It's it's a challenge to teach them and to learn from them, and it's a wonderful experience. And how many days are they here with you? And you're with them the entire so, trip? No, no, we're not with them. The guides are only with them for five days. But they do all, they do classes, they do other kinds of experiences. They go to the Kotel. It's a very powerful, they they visit soldiers on bases. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful experience for them. Wow. 
and hopefully it will start again. Yes, so what happened was uh, everything kind of shut down exactly a year ago. And uh, one of the first things I decided, like really, I think I remember it was a Friday and I had just found out that like my Darkanu students were going home and anything that I had was you know, unbooked. And I said, okay, I'm going to write a post every day about Israel every day except Shabbos, uh, post it on Facebook, send it out on a mailing list to anybody who wants so that people will be connected to Israel. And this was meant for two purposes. Number one, that I shouldn't go bananas because, yes. you know, you have to not do other things besides washing the dishes and yelling at your kids. Uh, <laughs> I actually have chosen to mainly do that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we, we all do more of that than we hope. But also because I felt like people really wanted to connect to Israel and they couldn't. They couldn't yeah. come. Look, we did something in Matan. The first Zoom tour that I did, now I'm doing them all the time, Achai Abina asked me to do something for um, Yom Yushalayim. And I said, great, I'll do something for Yom Yushalayim. And it was sponsored both by Matan and the Jerusalem Post. And we had, I think, 600 people who showed up. I, it was crazy. Nobody expected numbers like that. But people have a thirst to connect to the land of Israel. And hopefully that's what I'm able to help them with. I really hope that when we move out of this period of our life, that the good things will remain. Meaning for all the times in your life and in your year where you can't make it to Israel, that people will still engage in yes. virtual ways that they can. Yes. But that, of course, like everything in our life, there is no replacement for the real thing. Right. And that coming here Although is... I have to say, now that I've been doing these, I have a few people who are coming regularly to the, the Zoom, the virtual tours that I give. Mm -hmm. And one woman said to me, listen, I, I would never have met you. I would never have come on your tours because I'm not a healthy person. I can't walk. And this was always like Gadol. This was too much for me. And now I'm learning so much and I'm going to so many places. So for me, that's, that's amazing, right? Yeah. That's a wonderful feeling. That it even opened up a new channel that, yeah. that wasn't there before. Yeah. Shuli, while there's so much of our life that has become virtual, can you also just explain it a little bit for our audience what those tours are like that you lead? Okay. So first of all, I am very proud of myself because I learned. <laughs> no, it's Shuli not. Shuli does not like technology. I, I learned many, many new things. Yes, Yosefa taught me many things like how to text and all sorts of wonderful <laughs> things. Uh, it's the advantage of having younger friends. But I, I really, I had no idea how to do any of this. And I fixed my website and I set up a way for people to pay me. And I learned how to do these tours. I, I, yeah, I know. It doesn't sound like a big deal. It's very impressive. I have, I I have improved my PowerPoint skills and yes. I'm, I'm 34, so I understand. So okay? I am very proud of what I learned. So what I basically, what I I do what I what works for me. Different people do different things. There are people who go out with their phones or with a cameraman and they they shoot. And I've done that. Like Yael and I did that for the Herzog Yumeyun this summer. We yeah. went out and we did a, a tour that was actually shot by videographers. That was really cool. But in real life, I don't have those resources. So <laughs> I don't have my personal videographer. So what I do is I prepare a one-hour um, lecture, basically, but that has lots and lots and lots of pictures. So we sort of virtually visit a place. It has advantages and disadvantages. Look, like you said, there's nothing like going to the real place. However, there's no buses. There's no bus drivers. Not something yeah, I some miss of the in my life. <laughs> So many stories. Buses um, and bus drivers. But the headaches also, of real life is, are not But you there. also can cover an enormous amount in an hour, which, you know, I, I just did a tour on Spot the other day, right? I was all over Spot from all different time periods and all different places in an hour, which you could never do in the real world. Yeah. 
No, of course. Of course, there are advantages that we're taking with us from this virtual world. Yeah. It won't come to replace, but I think it'll come to in addition. Enrich. Yeah, to enrich and in addition with. I want us to pivot into the text that you brought for us, which I have to say that I once learned with you when we were in Neot Kedumim. Okay. It makes sense, right? Uh, that when I was with you on a Matan uh, summer program tour, so I remember it from there, and it was it was very hot. <laughs> I remember it was such a hot. Also, place. that you don't have on virtual tours. There's no tours. heat and sweating. Okay, so please uh, read with us. Uh, we love to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, she brought the Mishnah and Pirkei Avot in Perak Bet, uh, Mishnah Chet, in the second chapter of Pirkei Avot, the eighth Mishnah. Okay, so this is in the series of kind of like the, I don't know if they're biographical Mishnayot, but we have the lists of the Chachamim and their teachers. And here we hear about one of the greatest of the Tanaim, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, right? And he has five students. Chamisha Tamidim Hayulo the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Obviously, he has more, but these are his five Top students, okay? The Eluhain, Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonos, Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, Rabbi Yossi Akoin, Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Hu hayam monet shivchan, and he would recite their praises. Now already, first of all, this is already a very lovely idea. Here's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, supreme teacher of his generation, right? Teaches in the shadow of the Beis HaMikdash. You can imagine the crowds that are gathering. And yet, for his primary students, he understands that they're not just brilliant. Each one has a shevach. Each one has some special quality. And that is really the true, the true educators really do see what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of their students, and they they try to help them. We're going to focus on two of them because this is the other part that I like about this Mishnah. Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonus, bor sud she'eno me'abed tipa. And the other one we're going to focus on is Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, ma'ayan hamitgaber. And here's where you get to this really incredible idea. And this is one of the things that I really try to convey in what I'm teaching, which is that when you understand the context and when you understand the world that the people who are talking come from, you have so much more understanding. So what does it mean, right? Rabbi Yezer ben Harkonus, bor tipa. He's a plastered cistern that never loses a drop. Okay, I'm moving on, right? I, it doesn't make much sense to me. I don't understand what it's saying. Rabbi Yosho ben Hanania Ashrei Yoldato, right? I'm, his mother is so happy. That one I understand, but it's this plastered cistern, right? Rabbi Lazar ben Arach Ma'ayana Mitgaber. He's a flowing spring. Okay, that, you know, is very pretty, I can imagine. But once you understand what is a boar and what is a Ma'ayan, and then you start to delve into who are Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonnes and who is Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, then suddenly there are depths there that were not there before. So what is a bore? A bore is a cistern, okay? A cistern is not a source of water. It is a container of water. You have to gather the water in the wintertime. I mean, you have a lot of water in Eretz Israel. Summer, we don't have any water. So the smart person creates plastered cisterns, right? Cisterns that collect water, runoff from all over. And we have these all over the land of Israel, small ones, enormous ones, right? The Byzantine monastery right near Male Adumim. Um, of Timus, right? Saint of Timus Monastery. There's just that one right here by Tekoa. And there's one right here by Tekoa, yes. right? Uh, but of Timus Monastery, they knew they were in the desert. They built this massive cistern, massive, so that when the flash floods come in the wintertime, they'll collect all that water, okay? And it's not just a bore, a cistern, but it's a bore seed. It's a plastered cistern. So every drop of water that comes in is never lost. On the other hand, the bore does not create its own source of water, right? It all comes from outside. Who's Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonnes? Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonnes, Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol, one of the greatest of the Tanaim, one of the most tragic of the Tanaim. He says, I never taught something 
that I didn't receive from my teachers. That's what he's famous for. He is the conveyor of the Mesorah. And you say, oh, that's unoriginal. No, that's an incredibly important position to have in the world of Chazal, but he's not an originator. He mm -hmm. is a, he captures that water. He captures he's that the Torah. Yitzchak. What? He's the Yitzchak. He's the Yitzchak, beautiful, right? He captures that Torah and saves it for the next generation. And that's Rabbi Ezra ben Arkanos. Rabbi Ezra ben Arach is a Mayan HaMitgaber. A Mayan HaMitgaber, a flowing spring. We've all seen springs. And they go and they flow and they move on and they are never the same from one moment to the next. Rabbi Ezra ben Arach is not somebody who retains within him these deep wellsprings of Torah, but rather he's always coming up with chidushim. He's always coming up with new ideas. And that's the difference between a boar and a mayan. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is able to look at his students and say, that's the difference between you. You're the innovator, but I'm not going to trust you to pass on the teachings of the generations before. Whereas Rabbi Lezer, I'm going to come to you when I need to know what this one said and what that one said and mm -hmm. everything else. And to me, it's just a very powerful example of what I'll call Torah Eretz Yisrael. Things that are not clear or were not clear to Jews in Galut. Right, maybe they, this may be, right? There are other things that are definitely were not clear. And suddenly we come back to the land of Israel and here we see it, right? We see the world that the Chachamim saw. We understand their metaphors and we get so much more depth and richness from the learning experience than we could have gotten otherwise. And that's one of the things I really try to do in my in my teaching. It reminds me a little bit of uh, of Rashi and Ramban when they were able to also see Eretz Yisrael and they go back and they right. write and they rewrite different parts of their commentaries. Right, seeing is is a different experience. Right, I'm I'm always amazed by Rashi. Right, Rashi is brilliant. How much he intuits and how much he understands, but yet his world is France. Yeah. And he can't. It's not possible for him to understand certain things about the world of Eretz Yisrael. Beautiful. I love that. And I, I'm remembering exactly where we were standing in Notes Kadoim <laughs> when you taught us that. I think also, you know, of course, there's the metaphor here for water, which is obviously meant to be Torah in the, in the Mishnah as right. well. I love that idea. And I love also that everybody can look at this and see something very different. And you look at this as a tour guide and you see the Mishnah and say, oh, we understand this Mishnah better because we live in Eretz Yisrael, where somebody else will look at this Mishnah and that's not necessarily the part right. of it that, that you speaks out You can see it as an them. educator. You exactly. I, so I, my first, my first go-to is to look at it and say, wow, that's a great model for how teachers can look at their students. Right. So they look at their students as educators themselves. They look at them as people that they learn from. And, and but you, with your prism of the guiding in the land of Israel, you say, oh, this Mishnah only makes sense because I really know what right. a board in Mayana feels like. that's the beauty like. also of Chazal, that there's yeah. so much depth. And then everybody can see see all different uh, angles. Beautiful. Okay, we're going to move into our final round of questions. Round. Yeah. Do I get a Should prize? We? Okay, I just want to say that, that I don't, do you guys still have this book, The Creative Strategies, right? That The blue book I don't remember. No, what you got you you wrote it. You you and your husband I didn't wrote write it. it. Jonathan wrote he it. He wrote it. That blue book with all those creative ideas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But on the front, there's one of your children who's in yes. a bath pretending yes, to yes, be Moshe. Yes, he didn't yes. realize since he was like I don't he know a month, months old. three months old, in a bathtub. Yes. If you want creativity, bring Jonathan. I know he's not a woman. He didn't go to Matan, <laughs> but he's he's the creative one in the family. Uh, so I actually bought. I bought that book when I was younger, and I used ideas from it. All I these great. You are uh, going to be using your baby in the bathtub. I, with Seder. So we we missed our our slot. She's now eleven months, but we can try and put her in a bathtub and see if she'll if she won't scream. We did it with David when he was about ten. Also, he wore a bathing suit. He was also so maybe this is a good idea for a shtick for this Pesach. Okay, Shuli, what book is on your nightstand? 
so the books that I'm like pretending to read or like the books that I'm really reading? I think what you're really reading okay, is good. Because, you know, they're also the ones that you pretend to read. Um, <laughs> so I have two books now on my nightstand. First of all, my husband got me for my birthday. He got me Gil Mark's Book of Jewish Food or Jewish Cookery. I don't remember what it's called. Ah, it's such a fun book. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, Gil I, Marks I, was a neighbor of ours. He passed away a few years ago. He knows everything there is to know about Jewish food. And it's just one of those books that you can pick it up and you can look and you can find out about Kugel and it's great. I, um, the other book that I'm reading right now is a very depressing book. Um, my son gave it to me, Philip Roth, The Plot Against America, yeah. right? this yeah. dystopian vision of what would happen if fascists had taken over America in 1940. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. It's very chilling. <laughs> Because you can really it's see. Philip Roth, so he, yeah. he only does chilling. But but he it's so well written. And I'm also reading it as, you know, a child of a survivor. And and how would this and America was always the haven, right? America is the most important place. America took us in. And what would we feel like if that was flipped around? Yeah. My uncle actually, I think he just completed um, a biography on Philip Roth. It's oh, actually yeah. getting pretty big press. Yeah. Cool. He's a historian. Okay, who would you like to sit down with for coffee? So I don't have any like super people, like, you know, I don't want to sit with BB or, you know, <laughs> or Moshe Rabbeinu. Or Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah. <laughs> I want to sit down with my mother because I really miss my mother and I haven't seen her in a year and my sisters and my sister's new baby. And yeah, those are, those are the people I'd like to sit with. Okay, that's understandable. I'm, I'm going on two years here with my mom, so I get oh, yeah. that. What is your favorite tefillah? I have to say that, um, you know, because that's where you pour out everything, but that's a little long. So I have to say that I have a new understanding of one of the brachot that I never really focused on so much. Uh, and I got this from my friend Yael Ziegler, who got it from our friend, Allah Shalom, Abigail Rock. Mm -hmm. And that is the bracha of Chonen Hadat. I never thought so much about Chonen Hadat. Like I sort of skipped over it and get into Rifainu and, you know, the things that we really need to think about. But she said Abigail, who died of cancer about a year and a half ago, she did not pray. She didn't focus on Rofei Cholim. She focused on Chonen Hadat because we want the doctors and the nurses and the scientists to come up with ways to heal us, right? Mm. That da'at is what we need in the world. And I've been feeling that very strongly this year, yeah. right? We are so grateful that scientists figured out how to make a vaccine, right? And we are so grateful that our government figured out how to get this. And, and it's all about the da'at and da'at in our personal lives, that we should have the, the knowledge and the understanding to do our jobs well, to help our children, you know, to be good in our relationships. Puts a real emphasis on our active part. And Rafa'enu is, is a very passive piece, yeah. right? Of we, This is the situation. These are the people that are sick. So it really puts the emphasis on the act, on the active part we of what we can do to, to change it. Can you give me the understanding and the knowledge so that I can solve the problems? That's beautiful. I'm going to take that with me. Thank you so much. Well, you, you're a woman of locations. So where is some place in the world that you would like to go? Oh, so many places. I want to go. Can we go? <laughs> Can we leave? Can we leave? Can we get on a plane and leave? leave? <laughs> um, I mean, I just want to go to the beach right now. But um, no, I really want to go to Rome, especially. Have you been there before? I have never been there. Oh, wow. um, I need to find a partner because my husband doesn't want to go anywhere where there are anti-Semites, which kind of limits you to um, nowhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, um, but Rome, because I teach so much about um, Second Temple period and post-Second Temple period, and everyone always says to me, oh, have you been to Rome, right? You have to see what the Romans did there to understand, you know, what they do here. So that's definitely a place I want to visit. Okay. 
Something people think about you that isn't true. Oh, so many things. People think that I'm a tour guide, so I have a good sense of direction. Terrible. Got lost <laughs> coming here. No, bad sense of direction. People think that I'm much more intellectual than I really am, right? Like I'll teach something and they'll say, oh, have you read these 14 different articles about that? No, I didn't. I just want to watch TV now. <laughs> um, I mean, I am. I am intellectually curious, but I think people think about it that I am more than I really am, which is a nice compliment. I should be. It's something to strive for. Well, that's definitely a compliment. It's always a compliment to you. Hidden talents. Hidden talents. I don't think I have any hidden talents. Uh, figuring out how to use PowerPoint, was that count as a hidden talent? <laughs> and now a revealed talent that you have. That's a revealed talent, yeah. No, no good answers for hidden talents. And uh, to close off our conversation for today, even though I don't really want to close it at all, something that you're grateful for in your life right now. Look, I think all of us in this year have come to spend so much time with our immediate family, which on the one hand, we're maybe not always so grateful for, but we have, and, I, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, we have found things in our spouses, in our children that we hadn't seen before. And I'm very grateful to have an amazing family. I'm very grateful to have a house that's big enough that I don't go crazy yes, when everybody's home. Big, I am piece. exceedingly grateful that I have a backyard. Yeah. Last spring and summer, I really never noticed the things that were growing in my backyard and the gardening and the and the world around me. And I do think that being confined to our little Dalit Amos does make you appreciate them even more. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand that. It's uh, for those of us who have been living in big enough spaces, we've really been, been blessed to, yes. to be in those spaces. Julie, I don't really want to say goodbye. I know you have something. This is so fun. <laughs> We used to spend every day together, and we never do that anymore, I which know. is sad. You didn't even say how we met. Tell the story. We met from the summer program in yeah, Matan. Matan. We we go. Josefa was back. my my trusty assistant. We were a fun team. It was great. It was great being with you and going on all those tours. And uh, I, I have a you know I love being in the classroom and in those spaces. And it was always such a great opportunity to be able to go out with you to the Shetach. I remember going to. You know, in the footsteps of Yirmiyahu and taking everyone and being with such a diverse group of women and, and women and men uh, who would come on right. the tours. It was a great, a great opportunity. I love working in the summer program. Um, Shuli, thank you so much for being here. This thank has been you so for fun. inviting me. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that so many will enjoy this conversation in the way I have. So thanks for being here today. Right before we end, I want to tell you about the upcoming Matan Summer Programs directed by Tamar Weissman and Serena Novik. The first is a week-long in-person program taking place between June 27th through July 1st. It will focus on studying Israel's flora and fauna. The second is a two-week Zoom program taking place between July 4th through July 15th. The classes will take place during Israel's afternoon and U.S. morning hours, intended to make Matan learning accessible to our annual summer students who can't physically be with us this year. We will dig into Jewish FOMO, finding our place within the family of nations. Please check out the Matan website for more information. We can't wait to summer learn and Zoom with you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to Sofia Vindish for producing this episode and the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one -on -one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. 
You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.